Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome to Top of the Morning on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. Our conversation today will examine the latest UBS house view as we will walk you through the current thinking from the UBS Chief Investment Office. Uh, joining me for the conversation today, glad to welcome back to Top of the Morning, uh, Jason Dreho, Head of Asset Allocation Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office. So Jason, good morning. Uh, welcome back and looking forward to our conversation today. Yeah, good morning, Dan. It's good to be here. Absolutely. So, Jason, I know within the monthly letter from Mark Hayfley, Global Chief Investment Officer, uh, he does talk about zero gravity conditions. So can you offer, Jason, some clarity around that characterization of the current environment? Yeah, so, so the term was a little bit of a play on, uh, you know, recently we've seen Jeff Bezos and also Richard Branson, you know, take spaceships up into the lower atmosphere, um, busy outer space into, you know, also zero gravity. And it's in, in some ways an accurate characterization of what we're seeing right now in certainly in U.S. growth, but also in European growth, where it's just at a very, very elevated level when we measure it by nominal GDP. Uh, so to give you some context, uh, U.S. GDP growth in the second quarter in real terms uh, was 12% year over year versus the second quarter of last year. And then inflation in the second quarter is roughly 4.5% which combined leads to a nominal GDP growth rate of 17% in the second quarter of this year, year over year. And in Europe, it was uh, roughly around, uh, you know, 15% kind of year over year. So very, very elevated levels. Because just, you know, to give some perspective prior to the pandemic, your nominal GDP growth would be running around, you know, closer to 4%. So so significant increase from, from a very low level year over year. So that's what we mean, kind of this zero gravity. We're just almost at a, such a stratospheric level. Uh, that's kind of the economic environment we've been operating in. Uh, and there's a bit of a result. It's also supported very strong kind of earnings growth. It's supported, you know, different sectors and assets that are really sensitive to kind of a global recovery because you're seeing these very large pickups in nominal GDP growth. But eventually, uh, you know, these conditions will ease. You know, at some point you return from zero gravity to back to Earth. Uh, and this is going to create some questions in terms of as we kind of re-enter back to sort of normal levels, how should investors sort of navigate? How should they kind of be positioned for? But that's the, con- con- the context we're talking about when we say kind of zero gravity economic conditions. So I do want to get into positioning in just a few moments, though. Before we do that, Jason, these zero gravity conditions, how long are these conditions expected to persist from your vantage point? Well, they should persist at least through year end and, you know, quite likely until kind of the middle of next year. So potentially upwards of, of 12 months. Uh, and the reason for that is, you know, economic growth still remains very strong. Uh, you know, while there's been some speed bumps we've encountered recently, and you've seen it in the data, uh, due to perhaps kind of COVID-related concerns that people, you know, at least slightly dialing back some of their spending patterns, um, but also COVID-related supply disruptions, uh, moderated growth, a little bit relative to these lofty expectations, overall levels of growth and inflation should, you know, remain fairly elevated through, you know, the rest of this year and into early next year. And it's really kind of predicated on the fact that, Consumer spending remains very strong, uh, and the basis for that should continue because we know households have built up a lot of excess savings over the past you know, year and a half. Uh, early on in the pandemic, when they weren't spending, they were staying at home, also through significant fiscal transfer support from the federal government. So there's a lot of money they kind of built up in excess savings that is being eaten into, but there's still a lot of money there. Uh, at the same time, as the job market recovers, uh, you know, labor income will increase and people will get more, you know, spending money on that regard. So the consumer, which is 70 plus percent of the economy, it remains in very healthy shape. Uh, a second factor is, uh, we should see, you know, very strong kind of job momentum 
continuing through at least for the rest of this year. Uh, we've saw, for example, in you know, July, you know, over 900,000 jobs created. You know, prior months were revised higher. So we could easily see for the next couple of months job growth in that range. You know, I'm moderating only a little bit through the rest of the year. Uh, and it should benefit job growth, that is, uh, when we see the uh, enhanced unemployment benefits expire in early September, which has been a bit of a disincentive for some people at least to go back to work. Uh, maybe even a bigger factor is with schools reopening and most schools now across the country with in-person learning, you can see people who maybe had to stay home to take care of their kids. That will allow them to re-enter into the workforce. Plus, these schools who in the past would have employed, you know, supplemental staff, you know, support staff, didn't do that last year. Now they could look to do that kind of hiring. So that should be another factor, kind of lift employment, uh, you know, as we move into the fall. Uh, and the final, you know, factor is that, you know, if you look at inventories, especially at the retail level, are very low. And certainly sales to inventory ratios are kind of at extreme levels, which suggests that retailers will be looking to restock. Uh, and that's going to be kind of, you know, create demand throughout the overall kind of product pipeline. Um, and supply constraints still exist, so it may take a little bit of time for them to materialize, and that's why this could be sort of a, a long get a restocking cycle, not just the rest of this year, but into next year. So between sort of these inventory factor, job growth, and strong consumer, all that sort of bodes well for a continuation for another at least six months of you know, strong nominal GDP growth. And inflation, while it should start to moderate the middle of next year, will be kind of elevated and only kind of gradually decline over that time. So you add good real GDP growth, you know, a little bit elevated inflation that leads to still high levels of nominal GDP growth. Jason, against that backdrop, how might that translate to CIO's outlook for both earnings and equities? I know we're coming off a very strong Q2 reporting season. Equities are largely trading within record territory. So what supports the thesis? I know within the House view, it's expressed that perhaps further upside is expected on both. Uh, Can you walk us through CIO's current thinking there? Well, historically, you know, uh, the revenue growth, nominal revenue growth for companies, which is, you know, the kind of the key input into ultimately getting the earnings, is going to be, you know, move fairly closely with nominal GDP growth. So when we see these levels of, you know, 17% in the second quarter, and potentially double digits, nominal GDP growth in the U.S. for the third quarter, fourth quarter, and even potentially into the first quarter of next year, all that means that, you know, nominal revenue growth for, for S&P 500 companies should stay quite elevated. And if that's the case, then that should translate into kind of fairly strong earnings growth uh, you know, going forward, at least for the rest of this year and into early next year. The 90% earnings growth that we saw in the second quarter, like that won't be repeated because it was off a very low base in the second quarter of last year. But still, we expect you know, strong earnings growth for this year overall of, of 45% and continuing on towards 10% next year. So that's, again, sort of consistent with you know, nominal GDP growth being at a very elevated level, at least from a single digit to, to low double digit level. Uh, if you get that level of growth, it also gives companies you know, a little bit more cushion in terms of you know the margins and the margin pressure they might feel if they're getting rising input costs, and that means earnings growth continue to be you know, you know quite strong, which is why in the most recent House View update we also you know, upgraded our our forecast for the S and P 500, which now for the end of June of next year uh, or for June of next year it's 4800, and now we have a, a a price target of 5000 for the end of 2022, which is you know, roughly 16 months away, uh, which is a, it's a big number. But if we take where we currently are, like roughly 4400 it implies sort of a, a return of about 12%, which on a historical context, that's very close to kind of what, you know, kind of the annualized returns you would get, you know, over that time period, once you factor into the increase in sort of in dividends. So it's just strong nominal GDP growth translates into strong revenue growth, and that will continue to support very strong earnings growth, 
Uh, and for that reason, we still have maintained a you know, fairly positive view on U.S. equities really for the next year, a little more than a year, you know, given this macro backdrop. Okay, so the outlook, it does sound optimistic, though it is important to consider some risks to be mindful of. Now, both the Delta variant of COVID-19 and the course for monetary policy here in the U.S., those have been two recurring factors I know we've spoken about previously, and both of these factors have recently yielded some spouts of volatility in the markets over the past two to three weeks. So, Jason, how concerned are you over a slowdown in growth or momentum in the markets as a result of those risk considerations? Well, I think there's reasons to be, you know, acknowledge the risks, but also, you know, they're a risk case scenario, not a base case, case scenario. So if we start from the, you know, the COVID situation, uh, one, we're seeing you know, evidence that perhaps the case count in the U.S., while still rising on a daily basis, is rising at a much lower rate. And parts of the country that were hit early on in this kind of fourth wave, uh, are, are now starting to kind of actually kind of come down, whether it's in you know some of the southern states. So typical to what we've seen in prior waves, you know, similar to what we saw in the UK earlier in the summer, where there's a massive surge and then actually you know pretty kind of quick moderation. There's still reasons to think that that could play out in the US as well. Uh, so so this is a you know near term where kind of in the in the eye of the hurricane, as it were, in terms of the rising you know Delta cases. But if we look at a month from now, the situation should be in a much more kind of you know hopefully better situation. Even if it isn't, and if it's still kind of elevated, what we've seen thus far is you know, the consumer behavior hasn't really been impacted that much by the Delta variant. You know, people continue to you know, consume goods at a fairly you know, kind of consistent level. Um, they are, even in the service sector where it could be impacted, such as you know, sort of social activity, leisure activity, you know, going out to restaurants. You know, marginally, you've seen some sort of downtake, but not, not kind of curtailing the way that we've seen in the past ways where we're actually you know, dried up quite, quite significantly. All in the, in the kind of indicates that we're learning to kind of live with it. Um, you know that this is a reality that we have to deal with, and sort of you know economic activity kind of continue to sort of find a way to sort of manage around it. Which doesn't mean that it couldn't at least moderate growth a little bit, but it does suggest it won't have nearly the same kind of impact as, as prior waves had you know, last year, but also you know the start of this year. Uh, it's also the case that you know while the the case sort of the impact on broadly based on sort of you know hospitalizations haven't been quite as bad, especially for, for people vaccinated. So we can see if, if vaccination rates can continue to take a little bit higher, that could also alleviate some of these concerns. Uh, but it doesn't mean that this is not a risk, and we're seeing elsewhere in, in other parts of the world where cases are rising and the vaccination rates are lower. And there's also measures that are being taken uh, to kind of curtail these, sort of these zero-tolerance policies where you know, if a case materializes, entire countries are shutting down, as New Zealand did last week, you know, for three days after one case was detected. When that happens, it does have, you know, perhaps a more significant impact on economic activity because you are literally kind of grinding everything to a halt. Uh, so it's a risk, but a risk that for now looks like it's still you know, manageable. Uh, you know, on monetary policy, a lot of focus will be on the Fed later this week when they have their Jackson Hole meeting in, in Wyoming. Uh, there was some expectation that the Fed could announce uh, what its plans are for kind of tapering its bond purchases, but it looks unlikely at this point in time that's going to happen. Uh, I think late last week it was announced that Jay Powell would actually give his presentation by video conference rather than being in person, which is perhaps another sign that, you know, don't expect anything big because if it was, he would actually chose to, sh- to show up in person. Uh, and even once they do announce likely the plans of what they intend to do on tapering in September and then maybe start to execute by November, December, it's going to be a very kind of gradual draw of the tapering and perhaps even longer into 2023 before they even look to raise rates. So we still have a long period of time where monetary policy is still very accommodative. 
you know, support of an environment as we've already talked to, like, you know, elevated levels of growth and inflation. Um, so it's still a very supportive monetary policy. So the risk of a you know, policy error, at least in the near term, looks, you know, you know very low risk, uh, which again is another reason to be sort of comfortable with, you know, a relatively optimistic outlook for the economy, but also for financial markets. Well, thank you, Jason, for the clarity on those risk considerations. I know near term, we will be hearing from Fed Chairman Jerome Powell a bit later this week, I believe on Friday. So with all of this in mind, coupled with your outlook, Jason, how should investors think about allocation at this time? Well, I think kind of more broadly, going back to what we began with of this kind of zero gravity kind of conditions, very high nominal growth, uh, this tends to support what we think is this reflation trade having more legs. Um, so assets that would be able to, to benefit most from it, uh, you should try and take advantage of it through exposure. So this tends to, you know, kind of tilt towards value stocks, uh, you know, financials, energy, um, other commodities in general, uh, you know, should all benefit from this kind of very strong nominal kind of growth globally. Uh, and, and, uh, that's kind of how we're positioned. We think it's, there's more kind of room to run. It has been sort of a challenge a little bit earlier in the summer and it was well, sort of recovered recently. Last week we saw some kind of wobbles in that. But we think that's likely to continue, certainly if we look take a, a six-month horizon. So you want to be positioned for that to continue as opposed to get sort of you know, too defensive at this point in time. Uh, but it's also important to kind of think about we will sort of normalize, you know, at some point from this elevated levels, you know, six to 12 months from now. As that happens, there is the potential for more volatility, and last week is a good, good example of that. So, you know, some of the, the position adjustments we made, you know, last week, and just even in terms of U.S. equity sectors, uh, you know, upgrading healthcare and downgrading industrials reduces some of the pro-cyclical bias that we've had in, in the equity allocations. Uh, likewise, we had emerging market equities in the most preferred region. We've taken that down to neutral, which again is, you know, highly sensitive to kind of the global economic cycle. In addition, it concerns about what's going on in China in terms of the regulatory matters. So it's still a positive outlook, but maybe, you know, preparing for the reality that, you know, eventually we're going to transition from very high nominal growth to something that's more, more modest. Uh, which another way to think about for more technical terminology is that, you know, the beta exposure you want of just being sort of long equities, having pure market exposure, uh, you still want that, but maybe a little bit less there and thinking about how do you generate more alpha that's less sensitive to the markets. So more kind of relative value opportunities, you know, hedge funds could provide some of that opportunities. So thinking about how to prepare for that normalization, that's sort of a third, a second step. And the third one is, again, just sort of thinking longer term. While we do have tactically a preference for kind of inflation stories, uh, it's still important to be allocated to kind of longer term, kind of secular growth stories, whether it's in fintech or health tech, um, you know, digital transformation. I think that's an important area to continue to look at, you know, even as uh, you know, near term, perhaps there's, other, there's more tracking opportunities over the next six months. Well, Jason, very productive conversation this morning. Helpful to hear about the thesis behind CIO's current market outlook, as well as the risk considerations to be mindful of and how to think about allocation within a portfolio. So thank you for dropping by the podcast today, Jason. Wish you a nice week ahead and we'll look forward to catching back up with you again soon. All right. Thank you, Dan. Have a great week. Thank you, Jason. And again, today we've been joined by Jason Dreho, Head of Asset Allocation Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office. So as a reminder to our clients and our listeners, the UBS Chief Investment Office does author a variety of publications and blogs that touch on timely market developments, asset classes, and portfolio allocation. These resources can all be located on UBS.com forward slash CIO. That, of course, includes the publication which Jason has been making 
reference to during our conversation today, uh, the latest UBS Houseview Investment Strategy Guide, uh, The Return from Orbit is the title. So for clients of UBS, you can contact your financial advisor if you would like to receive a copy directly. Top of the morning is part of the UBS Market Moves podcast channel, which is available where podcasts are found, including on iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Pandora. Visit UBS.com forward slash studios to view the entire podcast offering, as well as the new UBS trending video series. From UBS Studios, I'm Dan Cassidy. Thank you for joining us. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliate, UBS. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients globally, UBS AG and its subsidiaries offer both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways, and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. In the USA, UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG and a member of FINRA SIPC. For information, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash working with us. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.